The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And these last uh, few weeks, uh, part of the larger ongoing discussion of the ten paramis, these beautiful qualities of the heart, and uh, recently we're looking at truthfulness. And this also uh, involves wise speech. And uh, one thing I came across recently from Ajahn Sumedho's book, he wrote a long time ago called The Way It Is. You can find that online digitally. It's free, The Way It Is by Ajahn Sumedho. He's this Western Buddhist monk, um, quite one of our real elders in our early Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, lineage here in the West. And it's this passage I like because it it really helps us not idealize these beautiful qualities. Like it's so easy when we even hear that word truthfulness, wise speech or anything like that to kind of use it to beat ourselves up. Like, well, I, I don't live up to that ideal, so I must be bad. And we beat other people up too, like, oh, that person isn't really speaking the truth, they're bad. So we want to watch out for this tendency to idealize any of these wholesome qualities of the mind. And what I like in this passage I'm going to read a little bit from is uh, Ajahn Sumedho is bringing up this point. Um, The Buddha often refer to the path of practice that most of us, all of us maybe, are involved with, just like cultivating mindfulness is definitely part of this path. And the point he's making, and the Buddha made way back when, is the path is like a raft that we use to cross life's floods. And one of the books that I put out, um, a really great book by Ajahn Sushito, one of Ajahn Sumedho's colleagues, on the paramis, that's the subtitle, Ways to Cross Life's Floods. So these ten beautiful qualities of generosity and moral sensitivity and wisdom and wise effort or persistence and truthfulness and patience and resoluteness and kindness and equanimity. These ten qualities, where we find them they're not in some idealistic place where we imagine the perfect Mark who's able to you know, manifest these amazingly nice personality qualities. But every single one of these wholesome qualities, they're very practical and functional, and they arise right in the middle of our messy lives. So, like if we're interested in the wholesomeness, practicality, and the power of truthfulness, We don't find it somewhere else. We find it right here in this moment. Like the beautiful and powerful expression of truthfulness, we build that raft right in a moment, any moment of, you know, conversation with another human being, for example. So let me read a little bit of this. And this section and the way it is, thank you for... uh, Whoever put that, maybe that's Nancy who put that in the in the chat, if you're interested. It's really a great little booklet that Ajahn Sumedho wrote many decades ago. And he's talking about the, the path, the Eightfold Path in this section of the book. Now don't 
see this as something that deals only with very deep and important issues because it's about the here and now, the way things are. We're not just working with extreme situations, but with sitting, standing, walking, lying down, breathing, feeling normal beings, feeling as normal beings and living in a moral environment with the way it is. We don't have to go to hell to really see suffering. We're not seeking it out. We can create hell right here, right? He mentions the monastery that he was the abbot at, Amaravati. Not because Amaravati is hell, but because we create it with all kinds of miserable things from our minds. And this is the suffering that we can work with. So we, he's basically saying the flood of our suffering. You know, that's a, it's a, one of the most common images the Buddha used to describe the torments of human existence because teaching for those and living, you know, for those 80, 85 years in the Ganges floodplain in northern India, that was the sort of most intense natural disaster because, of course, they didn't have early warning systems and, you know, the waters would rise and sweep the whole town away. So it was a real terrible thing that would happen from time to time. So he chose to use this common natural disaster as a simile for how we get swept away. And the other way, the other common simile that the Buddha used are these spreading vines that grow in big tropical trees. And um, like a bird will eat some of the fruit of one of these vines and poop on the top of a branch. And these seeds can start to sprout right there on the branch. And they just grow, you know, there's enough moisture, enough maybe debris on the branch. It just starts to grow and eventually will drop vine uh, roots down from the branch to the ground. And over a long period of time, that vine in completely encompasses the large tropical tree. And you get these huge complex of trees, you know, with the roots dropping down from the branches nothing left of the original tree. They've all been overtaken by these spreading vines. You can't even find any part of the original tree because it's all been surrounded by the vines. And it looks like a massive tree, but it's really these spreading vines that have grown atop. And these are these images, the two images, the flooding and the you know spreading vines that the Buddha uses to describe the tendency of our mind. And I mentioned last week this conversation the Buddha had with his son when his son became a novice at the age of seven or eight, something like that. And he went through this long sort of description, but the, the point was anybody, you know, the son's name was Rahula. Rahula, anytime you can justify uh, saying a deliberate lie, you know, using deception, speaking for your own advantage or anybody's advantage, then basically you'll be able to justify anything, any kind of unwholesome act. And it's sort of an interesting thing for us to reflect on. Not necessarily to scare ourselves, but just to ground ourselves, like not to... Because we tell ourselves a lie, like, oh, it's okay to say it this way. It's okay to leave this part of the truth out or to exaggerate in this way. We generally, in our society... Right, We play loose with the facts as if, you know, like we use them strategically (laughs) 
for our own advantage or for somebody's advantage. We manipulate the truth as opposed to having a more respectful relationship, which doesn't mean we actually know the truth. It's just that's part of the respect. Like we have momentary clarity. Sometimes the only clarity we have is like what's not okay. We don't actually know what is okay, but we can have some clarity what's not okay. So here's the part I wanted to share. The Buddha referred to his teaching as a raft, which you can make out of the things around you. You don't have to have a special motorboat or submarine or luxury liner. A raft is something you make from the things around just across to the other shore. We're not trying to make a super-duper vehicle. We can use what's around us for enlightenment. The raft is to carry us across the sea of ignorance. And when we get to the other shore, we can let go. Which doesn't mean you have to throw it away. So think of this in terms of wise speech or this uh, valuing truthfulness. It's like it's a, a messy and ordinary endeavor in every moment in the conditions that we find ourselves, right? We just speak the truth. Sometimes we speak the truth by not saying anything. Sometimes we speak the truth by maybe using a loud voice, right? Because sometimes that's the most skillful, appropriate way to do the right thing. But we do the right thing. We don't hold on to having done the right thing, right? That, that like sensitivity, that moral sensitivity, that clarity, that willingness to be humble and patient, that allowed us to meet the moment and say, show up in that moment, say the thing that needed to be said, say it at the right time, in the right way, with compassion, you know, like not wanting to contribute to harm, but really wanting to contribute to our own well-being and the well-being of others. And then we let it go. We don't like spend the rest of our life remembering how wonderful that thing I said back then was. We let it go. It was a raft that we created in that moment. And you could do this with any of the ten paramis. A moment of kindness, a moment of wisdom, a moment of generosity, a moment of renunciation or letting go. Right? It's just a moment of wisdom, like coming from being present, from being intimate, from not having a fixed idea about anything, then we can build a raft in that moment. We can, ex- You could say we can express some freedom, some enlightenment, some absence of the rigidity of self-centeredness in a moment and be relatively free in that moment, but that in a way saves us for a moment. And I think this is a really good way to think about awakening or enlightenment. You know, it's something that arises in a moment nothing to be grasped. So instead of thinking of it in terms um, there are enlightened um, beings, it's more that there are enlightened moments, which would mean that there is a profound sensitivity, a profound humility, and a profound responsivity. All of that is just available in our human mind-heart, right? this responsivity, this sensitivity or intimacy, this valuing of non-harming. And when there's 
no rigidity there, no fixed ideas, no fear, then the mind, one moment at a time, it will build a raft out of that moment in the sense of it will have an appropriate response, whether it's saying something that's useful in that moment or keeping quiet if that's the useful thing in that moment or whatever the action, the thought, the word might be that would really contribute in that moment. Let me just read one more paragraph from Ajahn Sumedho's section from his book, The Way It Is. He writes, This other shore, and that's uh, you know part of that simile of crossing the flood with a raft that we build moment by moment. He talks about the other shore where we let go. So the other shore can be can also be a delusion because the other shore and this shore are really the same. It's merely an allegory. We never really left the other shore and we've always been on the other shore anyway. And the raft is something we use to remind us that we don't really need a raft. So there's absolutely nothing to do except to be mindful, to sit and walk, lie down, eat your food, breathe, all the opportunities as humans to do good. We have this lovely opportunity in the human realm to be good, to be kind, to be generous, to love, to serve, to help others. This is one of the loveliest qualities of being human. And I really like this. So then instead of like, I'm going to be truthful, I'm going to speak wisely as like, I'm here in terrible land and I'm going to get to the other shore, which is some kind of heaven. It's more the paramis, these wholesome qualities of the heart. They're like perspectives or lenses that allow us to be here where you know, where we always are in the present moment. But it's a lens or a perspective that allows us to be here in a fresh way, in a free way. It changes everything. So it isn't, you know, because this is the, a shadow in a lot of spiritual, you know, s- speech or ways of understanding that I'm a deluded, I'm a bad person, and I'm going to practice and I'm going to become a holy person and then I'll be free. But it's really about here and now transforming one's understanding and we build a raft we use the teachings in this moment with what's around me in this moment the conditions the circumstances the qualities of my own mind and heart in this moment the difficult interaction i'm in the middle of where i have to say something i feel like i do need to say something but it's tricky and i'm angry I don't want to act out my anger, but I don't want to be quiet. That doesn't seem appropriate, right? That's the messiness of our moments, whether we're in the role of a parent or a business colleague or our partner or friend. And we're in community, you know, we, and we're always dealing with power issues in community, whatever level that might be. And uh, so that the integrity of the connection and learning that there is a way to respond. There is an appropriate response. And in terms of why speech, it may be being quiet, it may be speaking up, maybe choosing another time or another way to say what needs to be said even. Right at the end of last week, um, I think it was Shannon, but it might have been Shannon was responding to somebody who wrote something in the chat, um, which is really 
the important question like what does wise speech look like and feel like when there's conflict or when somebody is causing harm and something needs to be done and um, because this uh, this is a shadow in a lot of the teachings on wise speech is somehow thinking that wise speech means we avoid conflict or we avoid the difficult places in life where there's uh, changes really needed or someone needs to speak truth to people in power, right? So what does that look like? And I've been talking a lot about um, like we don't that we want this humility because we don't really own the truth. But we can, in moments at least, and sometimes in a lot of moments, we can be clear about certain aspects of what's happening. But we shouldn't imagine we have the whole picture. But it doesn't mean that our life experience hasn't taught us, hasn't delivered some you know, relative truth, like this isn't working or this isn't okay. We may not know how to fix something, but we can have some relative confidence. This is not okay. This needs to change. And that's the interesting place, isn't it, in our lives? Again, whether we're an activist trying to deal with some inequity or injustice in the world or working with our kids or working with our partners, like how to really inhabit where we have some clarity and some confidence without overreaching and imagining we know more than what we know, but not afraid to feel grounded in what we do know. Oh yeah, I, I really see that. I see something, you know, and out of that something maybe comes a need that I feel I have. I have this need for this kind of change or whatever it might be and to be able to speak from that place. And I hope we all get that this takes practice. Why would we expect to be good at this? We have to practice. And a lot of the practice is going for it and then being honest about what didn't work, what caused harm for ourselves or for others. And that may be the way we cause harm for ourselves or others, maybe because we didn't speak up. But then we notice, oh, in not speaking up, this is what got set, got set in motion, or in speaking up, or in speaking up in this particular place as opposed to waiting for another situation to bring it up, or to be speaking up with this tone of voice instead of another tone of voice, or speaking with this intention versus that intention. Like there are a lot of times in our close relationships with a partner or a dear friend or family member where I have something or you have something that, that needs to be said and you have some real confidence, like this really, I need to say this. But just because there's some real truth there doesn't mean like I can still say the same thing with one intention or I can say use the same words, but it's really arising from a different motivation. Like one motivation could be like a gotcha, you know, and it's it really is a little bit like using words that maybe are true in some way, but we're really using it as a weapon, like, I want you to hurt. I want you to feel that I'm right in this, what I'm saying, so that you hurt, <laughs> right? But there's another way to be able to say it from a different motivation, like, you may hurt, that may happen, but I don't want you to hurt. 
but I need to say this because my heart will feel right when I say it. And again, I don't want you to hurt, but this may hurt you. But it needs to be said. But it's not my intention to hurt you. So obviously, this is subtle territory. And um, and we need to not imagine that avoiding speech and avoiding the difficult places in our life and the difficult places in our wider communities is a way to deal with what the heart is saying needs to be addressed. One of the things I loved in uh, this uh, teaching in, uh, called Nonviolent Communication, hopefully many of you have come across it. It's really, I think, been impactful just generally in the West. I'm not sure. Well, I think it's kind of spread around the world. Um, started by Marshall Rosenberg, I think was his last name. Nonviolent communication. Sometimes you just see the acronym NVC, and a lot of people are common ground. We've taken some workshops, some people, quite a few of these trainings. But one of the basic premises in the nonviolent communication training is first of all, to realize I have some needs. And it isn't about whether the needs I sense that I have here in my heart are right or wrong. It's just those are my needs, you know, like what I feel I need in this relationship, for example, or in this situation. And of course, when I have a more honest acknowledgement of my own needs, it's pretty easy for me to realize, oh, they have needs too, you know, whoever's on the other side of the argument or the, the discussion, you know, they have needs. I have needs. I can be, you know, with practice, be more honest so I can articulate, at least to myself, what my needs are. Like, right now, this is what I sense I need in this situation, in this relationship. And that would be good to be able to communicate to the, the other per person. That actually might help this conflict or this difficult situation we got going together. And then, the more I can get interest, interested in the fact that the other person has needs, then I might actually want to hear what their needs are. What are your needs here? And then the way that the training, one of the, the skills that you learn in NVC, nonviolent communication, is like I should be able to tell you what I heard. So when you told me what your needs are, I should be able to repeat them back to you so you have a sense he really gets what my needs are. And then I have the sense that this person really gets what my needs are. Now, it doesn't mean that person's going to give in to me or that I'm going to give in to that, my, that person and, and what they're requesting or demanding. It just means we're a little closer to getting each other, really getting the wider view. Like, remember that image of the ocean, and we only know, you know, we're a boat in the ocean. We only know the water around us. We don't know the whole ocean. We only know the whole ocean by listening to others. And this is a good way to start to listen to, to others, is to realize as humans, and not even just humans, but other creatures, we all have our needs. And we may not be able to accommodate everybody's needs. I don't think we will. But in our decisions, like what we do, what we take, what we don't take, how we use the power that we have, the privileges that we have, it would be nice to know what everybody's needs are, to be clear about our own needs, 
to learn how to articulate our needs and to learn how to ask and hear other people's needs and to let them know that we've really heard them. Oh, what I've heard you say is you have the need for this. You really need this. Thich Nhat Hanh said, if you don't want to be changed, don't go into dialogue. And this is really potent. It's like, uh, if we're really going to have this loyalty to the truth in all of our ways that we participate in community, and of course, even being alone, like when we're sitting, the conversation continues. Like, we're talking to ourselves, and we're either... deceiving ourselves or trying to have some advantage like how that internal dialogue goes like spinning the truth we're even doing that with ourselves of course so it's like uh, when we take this training of truthfulness up we put on that lens it's a we really need to see because it isn't easy but we really have to see it as a practice of freedom we're learning how to be free because choosing uh, mistruths and partial truths and the manipulation of truth and deception using truth for one's advantage means we're condemning ourselves and probably others to a lot of pain and suffering I mean, we live, I'm sure people realize, we live at a time where there's just so much, partly because this is really an information age. It's it's kind of the currency of our time, information. There's just so much information flowing here and there. All, probably, most at least, maybe all, for some purpose, right? Not the information that's flowing, isn't really often for everyone's well-being. The motivation, the intention, it's really not about that. It's really about, it's really the play of power and power trying to protect power and trying to get more power regardless of the costs. And then we get a world where there's so much suffering and so much abuse so I want to end, um, before we end, we have 10 minutes left. I just want to share some of the specific Buddhist teachings about how to handle conflict. So this is one. O practitioners, a practitioner who desires to admonish another should do so after invest- investigating five conditions in oneself. So this is from the Um, Parimokkha, which is the guidelines for monastics for the nuns and monks. So maybe, maybe a higher standard, because these are people who are devoting their lives to spiritual practice, the Buddhist teachings, the the nuns and monks. But it, it makes a lot of sense that as lay people, we can, you know, aspire to these same rules. So after establishing five of these conditions in oneself, what are these five conditions? First one, am I one who practices purity in bodily actions, flawless and untainted? Like, am I somebody who really tries to live with the value of non-harming? Yeah, so before, what is it in the Bible? Something about 
you know, don't worry about the sliver in someone else when you have a log in your own eye. I know that's not it, but it's something like that, right? It's not really, we don't really have the clarity to admonish, admonish somebody else when we don't care about moral sensitivity. Who are we? The second, am I one who practices purity in speech, flawless and untainted? Right? So it's not just our actions that our speech. Are we somebody who really has dedicated our energy to really being full of care and how we use speech, not just our actions? The third is, is the heart of goodwill free from malice established in me toward my colleagues? Like, am I relating to those in my life with metta, with loving-kindness? with that basic goodness of heart. And the fourth, am I or am I not one who has heard much, who bears in mind what one has heard, who stores up with what one has heard, those teaching which are good in the beginning, in the middle, in the end. So basically, have I been a good student of not just the Buddhist teachings, but, but the sort of collective human wisdom? Have I listened well reflected deeply about what's skillful and and kind of own it, like I've internalized it, the wisdom. That's the fourth. And the last, are these rules of conduct thoroughly learned by my heart, well analyzed, thorough, thorough knowledge of their meaning, clearly divided sutta by sutta and known in minute detail by me? And so these are the five Things. So the, the fifth is, have I really reflected deeply about these five instructions? And these five instructions that I'm going to recite now are not just for monastics, they're for us too. Speaking at the right time. So you have to admonish somebody. We ask ourselves, is this the best time to do it? Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I need to say something to somebody, it's like, I kind of want to do it. And it's like, I feel rushed, like, no, no, I don't, I don't want to waste this opportunity. You know, there's something about being on that high horse and, okay, I finally get to be, you know, I finally got something I really have to say. It's, it's just, you know, some attraction to power. I don't know if I'm the only one. I don't suspect I'm the only one who's like this, but I see this in myself. And so this first requirement, if we're going to admonish then, is... Am I, have I reflected deeply about what's the right time, right place to do this? Can I do that and speak the facts? Just, you know, speak the truth. Or am, am I going to spin it by maybe leaving out some of the truth? Because you know how it is when we do admonish someone, we try to make our case stronger. I mean, we might actually need to say something, but we don't, why do we need to make the case stronger than it is? Why can't we kind of have a balanced presentation of what we need to say? The third is, do I speak gently or harshly? Like the tone of voice. And even that sense of like, holier than thou, you know, which can be a little more subtle. And then the fourth, do I speak words that are profitable? Or, you know, the whole idea is that these words are contributing to all of our well-being even though it might be really painful for the other person to hear, you know, part of 
being on this path is we're taking the long view. And with the long view, we know that sometimes we navigate through difficult times where things are really painful, but that's okay. It doesn't mean that in the end, it isn't going to be a really good thing that I heard this person tell me this. Do I speak profitable or words that really contribute to well-being? And the last is, do I speak with a kindly heart? Or am I being malicious? O practitioners, these five conditions are to be investigated in oneself and established in oneself by anyone who desires to admonish another. So the first part, the first four, are really about getting our act together. You know, so to, like, we should be someone who's been very interested in uh, valuing non-harming and really doing the work ourselves. And then once we've done that, then the five things we do is, speaking, is this the right time? We reflect deeply, is this the right time? Am I able to say something that really represents the facts, balanced, not shading the truth in any way? Can I speak gently as opposed to being harsh? Can I speak in a way that will ultimately contribute to everyone's well-being? At least that's the intention. And can I speak with metta, with kindness? That's the motivation. I'm not trying to harm you, but for everyone's well-being, as an act of compassion and a generous act, really, I need to say this. It wouldn't feel right to not say something. Now, I know when, when we hear these sort of high standards, it's easy for us to sort of, well, maybe it's better for me not to say anything. But this is where we really learn to trust that, what it feels like in the body. Because the you know, that hiri otapa, the wholesome regret, wholesome concern, it's a kind of emotional, energetic feeling, like, no, it doesn't feel right not to say anything. Okay, let me really resolve to notice the right time. Let me even think about it. Now, what would be the right time to bring this up? What should I say that is a, a balanced representation of what's going on as best I can see it? How can I practice so that when I say it, it's not harsh? I'm not dominating the moment with that kind of being on the high horse and because I'm right and I'm admonishing someone, so I've got power over. So this is a really good practice. Last week I encouraged us all to just notice little and big places of self-deception and deception generally, how we making things to someone's advantage, manipulating truth. This week, let's really uh, highlight these places where we are admonishing a child or a colleague at work or a partner or even ourselves, self-talk. And just ask, like, is this the appropriate time for me to, you know, hate myself, <laughs> give myself advice? No, let's think, you know, let Let's think about when and how I can review what I need to review. I Yeah, I get it. I need to think this thing through. But just sitting here venting and hating myself, that's not really contributing to anybody's well-being.
This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.